Welcome to The Turning Point, a podcast for any and all of us who are interested in education in sub-Saharan Africa. On this podcast, we'll be speaking with leaders, teachers and educators from all walks of life, but all of whom have a keen interest in the preparation of our next generations for an exciting future on the African continent. If you're interested in Africa taking its rightful place on the global education stage, or indeed simply interested in having a small window into this crucially important time in African education's history. Join us on The Turning Point to hear what others have to say. Welcome, Basola, and uh, welcome back, Andy, to this episode of The Turning Point. Um, I thought I thought it would be a good way to start this particular podcast with just actually exploring a bit of your uh, personal story, Basola, because I, th- I think... You have an interesting background in that you started work, uh, well, you, you were working for Deloitte, and so then you made this transition into into education. Um, and I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about that, about your sort of journey. Sure. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Um, so I, like I shared with you earlier, I used to, actually I studied economics and wanted to be an accountant from a childhood, so I ended up in Deloitte. Um, long story, <laughs> but getting there, prior to there rather, I'd had the opportunity to um, work in a school briefly, both in the UK and in Nigeria, and could see like the differences. In Nigeria, I was in a secondary school where in rural, semi-rural setting, I would say, not really rural, um, in Ogomosho, and it was very, it was eye opening for me. It was actually my my first um, major dive into education because in the UK I was doing more like teaching assistant, and but here I was actually seeing like the realities of education on the continent. And given that I had received, I would say fairly good education, private education, um, but then going to um, the UK, then coming back, going to the school, it was just on my heart to do something about the deterioration, like especially how it was very root based. But fast forward, you know, in my context, you know, when you go to school, especially when you study abroad, I want you to go get those big jobs and earn the big money. And so I ended up in consulting. But two years into it, I had this opportunity to volunteer for the Junior Achievement um, Program plus primary schools, money management course that just kind of introduced them on a very practical level on what money concept is. So we taught it not in the typical way of saying this is money, but like we actually brought cash and then had activities they could engage with. And it was more for me than them, I would say, because the kids were like lit up in the room. They had ideas. They were really open to the concept of savings and investment. Like you would, this are like, um, I think they were between the age of six and eight, but they knew they were open to that, the way they approach in which we were teaching it. And I was like, wow, because at their age, I don't think I had that engagement in, in a classroom setting and you know the kind of ideas that were coming out because it was facilitator um the facilitator was i was leading the conversation it was student-centered and so i went back to work and kept thinking about it i shared with my colleagues and they were like they've never seen me this lit up about anything um you know the passion and like how that experience really changed me and a few months down the line i was applying for a fellowship and just the question was actually what is your greatest achievement and the other things i've done but i couldn't think of anything i the only thing I could say was worth writing for me, even though it was reversed, because I would say that it was a children's achievement, but just being there 
and experiencing it and working alongside them, I counted it my greatest achievement. Um, not career, even though, yes, I'd had a stellar career up to that point, but I just felt being able to walk the education journey or just one day, it was a few hours <laughs> with these young ones. And if I'm given the opportunity to do this every day on a large scale, I would take it right away. And yeah, that's how I ended up switching career paths um, by 2016 into education. Fascinating, a fascinating story and uh, and really speaks to a sort of an awakening. And I think any of us who have been involved in, uh, in teaching or have been teachers ourselves or whatever, um, really, I suppose we've all experienced some level of that type of awakening. And, and, and what we're talking about today in this experiential learning is, is for me, part of that awakening. Um, Andy. I, I completely agree. I think when you start to see for yourself how education can be done differently, you, you, you ask yourself the question, how is this not everywhere already? And I think that's part of the, of, um, of the mission that we're all involved with in terms of how you can make that spread, uh, across the continents of Africa, because we know it needs it. I suppose a, a first question I've got for you, Bisolo, in terms of your transition from business into education. I suppose it's what advice would you give to others who might be in this might be in the same boat that they're currently in a setting away from education, but they're but they're getting interested in, in becoming involved. What would you why should they get involved and what motivations do you feel they should have to get involved in education if they're coming from the outside? Oh yeah. Um so I'd say that looking back, everyone like we need people that path, we need passionate people in education, we need people that are keen to hold the hands of their learners, walk the journey with them, understand that um, the power dynamic has changed, but even though it's now like we're, we're thinking about the learner, the learner is at the center, it's an opportunity to actually explore and grow like you were speaking to about like the awakening, to actually learn more about yourself. So I'll say that, take that step. Um, it could actually, it doesn't have to be like a leap like I did where I had dumped everything and then now I'm doing this in a new field, having to learn a lot. Um, but you could actually take that first step that I did in terms of like volunteering. Um, I think we need to bring more of the, the experts or people in the professional world or business world into the classroom because it actually speaks to the theme of experiential learning. Like they can contribute a lot when we start engaging community in the schools um, beyond just um, career day, but actually conversations that are happening in the classrooms, students have the opportunity. So that's one way I'd say that um, people that are thinking about it, considering it can start. Another thing is um, speak to others that have done it. Um, also find the niche. So for me, mine, like when I, when I came in and I was making this decision in 2016, I said to myself, I love education. I want to impact young people, but I don't think I want to do conventional education in the sense that I'm teaching because people were offering me come and teach economics because that's what I studied. I'm like, no, um, I want to work. I want to do something that actually see the transformation in my students. I can help them unleash something like, so I started thinking, what does that look like? And that led to me um, starting a program, an after school program on a club program. But now I was able to find an actual education setting that allows me to do this through um, my school here in African Leadership Academy, where we do entrepreneurial leadership. So now it's combining my experience in the business world and my interest in like transforming young people together. So now I can teach them from a practical lens. 
and help them uncover like skills that they want or businesses they want to start. So I think knowing what niche um, you want to feature in, if it requires you going back to school, you can. Like I took like a lot of short courses um, online. It doesn't have to be like a formal. Now you you should get a B.Ed. if you can. But if you can't, <laughs> then just figure out like what are the inroads, I think. That's what I would say. Figure out the inroads and cabin niche. Yeah, thanks, Masada. Uh, it very much speaks of, um, you know, there's so many different spaces in education for a range of different skills. And a lot of this speaks to, like, experience, uh, experiential learning and that kind of thing. And clearly what comes out from your work is your your passion for kind of students experiencing their learning. So just as a, a kind of a way of, of looking at, at this a little bit more closely, how, how do you define what how would you define experiential learning from your perspective as somebody um, who kind of explored this already yeah so i i think i'll define or not i think i define experiential learning as um learning by reflecting on doing or application so the reason why i put reflection in it is that we do different things every day. Students are engaged in a lot of activities. You know, activity-based learning or project-based learning has become popular these days. But there's an experiential learning, I think, takes it to that level of we, after you do, there's an opportunity to reflect so that you're thinking about the process, what has actually taken place, what have I learned, and then to be and an opportunity to get feedback and adjust and do again. So it's like a cycle. So it's not a one-off event so experiential learning is that cycle of doing learning by doing reflecting and getting feedback and then doing again and improving and growing in whatever skill set or knowledge that's um they're focused on it, it strikes me almost thank you that your business has come about almost by you going through that process as well yes absolutely. sorry andy no sorry i i, I was just going to say i i really love that you've for me, at least, move the the definition on to include reflection, because it is so important. If you do, if you just go through the projects and don't have the opportunity, then the growing the growth experience is minimised. And certainly, a short course I'm doing for for learning by doing right now, and, and for sharing learning with the community, hits hard on that. It's going to be a it's going to be one of the courses on the Ubuntu Hub, and it's it's really good to hear you that that's coming too. I suppose a follow-up question is is around the wording of experiential learning itself. It's not a common word beyond education anyway. And I suppose a question based on the experience you've had working with other educators is whether it's in a, a local language or in English, are there other words or ways of referring to experiential learning that get through more clearly to, to as wide an audience as possible? Um, I'd say that... The one I've heard is, or that I've used, is um, thinking about service and community-based learning. So like service-based learning in a sense, and service in that sense, because um, obviously we say experience is action-based, but service-based in the sense that when we are bringing, like when we encourage, when encourage educators rather to encourage the students to maybe volunteer or do something outside of the classroom that is applying their concepts, is them giving like service to that community or to that group or even to themselves actually. It doesn't always have to be outside. It could be like students serving one another and in the process they are actually learning and then they can reflect on what they have actually learned. Um, so that's one word. Action activity based is one that's more common. 
Um, that's what I think, which is why I was trying to make that distinction. Because when we teach educators, like in our programs and say experiential learning, and then they're like, oh, bring more projects or activities. Um, yes, but not really <laughs> with a caveat and saying, okay, yes, because that's how you can think about it. So rather than do, you know, in Montessori, for example, you know how they do a lot of activities to teach the typical subjects that the other teachers will just teach by re repetition or route. Yes, activity is the in route. But there is that continuity in the activity-based learning and there's that reflection and feedback in that process as well. So the teacher has to be involved, not just like give an activity and step back. Yes, you step back, the students experience what you can after you like coach through. I think maybe it's coaching as well. So like the role of the educator kind of changes in my view and my experience. Like you're no longer the residual or like the know-it-all when it comes to experiential learning. And I think it's something that most educators wrestle with um, in my experience. Like, um, but I don't want to jump out of myself <laughs> in case we'll still get to that part. So yes, I would say those are the two words. It's interesting. The um, Just the idea. I think all three of us have an idea about what experiential learning could be. And I love the word reflection in there. I think that's so important, as, uh, as Andy mentioned just now and, and as you've elaborated on. Um, it strikes me that obviously we're so we're the sort of people who who think about these innovative ways of of teaching and learning and whatever. And my experience of of many systems, uh, you know, certainly around the world, but certainly in Africa as well, is that they there's quite a lot of development required in terms of getting this to become sort of the norm of the way of teaching, because a lot of systems, a lot of um, of systems or a lot of schools in, in Africa certainly employ quite didactic measures of, of teaching and learning still. What's your vision for this? Like, what does it look like if we, if we say in 30 years time, what is it, what does learning in Africa look like if, if it were to go down your route? Oh yes. Um, learning in Africa would be totally different from the conventional that we have at the moment. Um, to say that like you were saying like we have a lot of didactic measures in and you know we haven't had seen a lot of progress in moving past things that we handed over to most of these african countries from colonial days and like it's been the same curriculum where there have been tweaks like the people that have sat around tables and done policies but we've seen very little progress being made in terms of implementation um from someone like to to sympathize with the teachers or the educators who I've sat with in the past, you know, they'll say we have limited resources and so on, which are valid challenges. But the vision that I have is that people, educators, and those that support administrators can actually empower the educators so that we empower our learners to become problem solvers. Because experiential and like, if you take this into the classroom in a way that even with our limited resources, in a way that's just centers that learning in even using like our everyday materials, our everyday experiences, leveraging those, leveraging other people in the communities to come into the school despite our limited ex um, resources, I think we'll go far because Africa is ripe. There's so many challenges, but then there's so much opportunities. And that's the tweak that moving from that didactic approach goes into this because now the students are taking learning in their own hands. They're becoming more autodidactic. They're thinking about how can, like when they see a problem, it's no longer... Uh, the vision is that it wouldn't be an obstacle. It wouldn't be an opportunity to give an excuse, but it will be an opportunity to explore. And 
by experiencing, putting, immersing themselves in the process, they start building the Africa that they want because we have a youth bulge, they say, and changing how we teach these young ones, their potential is infinite. They just need, to, just need to make these tweaks here and there. And of course, I look forward to the day when governments are investing in these processes so that the educators no longer have to give that excuse of, I have limited resources or I have this old curriculum to deal with because now it's gone at scale. Absolutely. So powerful. I, I, I love the answer that you've just given there because it doesn't just focus on what Africa hasn't got compared to elsewhere. It's got, it also focuses on the opportunities and the unique things that are available here. So I suppose a, a real quick follow-up question. How does this experiential learning, this vision of experiential learning look different in Africa compared to the rest of the world, not just because of the negatives, what isn't available, but because of the opportunities that are there? How, 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 how can we differentiate it and how can we um, make it something that can be shared and, and seen and understood by others so that they believe they can do it too. I've asked a lot. Um, so I'll use an example um, of my experience with my students and experiential learning in action and also what I've seen with like even other educators in my current school. So to my first like, personal experience, um, when we started the boot camps in Nigeria in 2016 into 2017, the first residential one that was seven Week, seven days long rather no we, i came in and told everyone that was going to be facilitating and teaching like this is not your typical classroom and yes we uh so of course i'd come in from like a training abroad and had this grand ideas but of course i had this limited resources as well that everyone has but i also thought like we had unique opportunities so where i had gone to in the u.s they were speaking about like fancy challenges like using robotics and whatever but then we had an insecurity challenge in Nigeria and we had we have like um, the timing issue where like teachers were complaining about students not coming punctually and all that stuff so I gave the challenge to the students I taught them design thinking and didn't teach it as a concept but said these are the principles it's a tool to solve problems now in this session you have to for the rest of the week you have to use this tool that I've given you by applying your research skills, your collaborative skills, work together in groups and take portions. And so what I'm going, what I'm trying to drive at is we use like our own challenges, for example. So the insecurity challenge, the set down, and the theme was we changed it and also made them see from another perspective, rather from a problem. I called it the not my blood because it was also like the issue happens far away from home that you tend to think that it's not your blood. That's why you're not engaging. And so now I'm like the exercise or the prompt is forcing you to engage with something that is not your blood. And it was really mind blowing to see. And then there was also like one around water, I think, because there was water scarcity that year. And the opportunities, like the solutions at the end of the week that the students came up with were actually like mind-blowing because I wouldn't have thought about them to be honest because maybe I, I've got so used to the problem but they were able to like think about um, their different tribal heritages to address the not my blood problem for example the insecurity issue about how they would and they came up with like 
initiatives about like trick um, going down the lane of an history from like their parents in terms of like cultural languages resources that they have in common to come up with like a some a, a way to fight insecurity and rather than infighting they are supporting each other the water people came up with like a scientific they applied their physics in that and chemistry in that session and built like a water filter that used like everyday resources you know in the past they used to use um more clay pots and so they in, they incorporated that kind of like they apply technology but then they were thinking oh we could use clay pot because we don't have access or clay like mold things like that it was just really beautiful to see that we don't need fancy things we just need to give like the instructions the guidance the coaching and opportunity to keep tweaking and reflecting and let them think about what abounds like yes we have these problems what what are the things that we have in abundance the resources that we can leverage and so taking this answering your question um in terms of in the classroom or like in africa in african context is really having educators open up their minds to think about the everyday resources that they have so it, it can even be as little as just um some might not have access to sticky notes i would say like even just a for paper line notebooks sticks that are around what can we start encouraging ingenuity of our students with because children are born to play they naturally play they can figure things out with nothing so how do we use that and encourage that to teach our own principles that we want that's a lovely answer thank you and just a, just, i'm not going to ask another question just it's it's just a really interesting point that you make on on how on the observation of different tribes and addressing that particular issue because that's something that could be easily forgotten if you have not been based uh, in, in this context. So thank you for that. Um, it, yeah, what what a, I, I think you could almost argue that there is a greater deal of opportunity uh, that exists in Africa simply because the challenges tend. Well, I think a lot of the challenges are so raw. Uh, they they not only global challenges but also local and and national yeah. challenges and and out of challenge out of adversity springs innovation i guess um Absolutely. but but i wonder if you could sort of explore a little bit of the I, I suppose the key challenges that face education systems as they try to expand you know as they might try to expand it to this way of thinking well i wonder yeah, what um, those might be from your perspective so um from experience working with educators so we we try to work with just educators directly when we started working there for greatness and you know they would say to me that this is fantastic but the curriculum is like puts me in a box i have a checklist you know there's going to be an inspector that's going to come in and wants to see that i've done abc or the grades the students need to you know sometimes schools have targets so it pushes the educator rightfully so to think about the outcome rather than um, the process and you know experiential learning is really more about the process than the outcome even though the, you end up getting that outcome it may just take longer unfortunately but then there's also in every school that i've been so far there's always that time issue where people are like we don't have time so those are some of the constraints time infrastructure curriculum and most importantly like the administration it could be at the government level or if it's in the private school like the owners they have like this old target around number of students class sizes and so on and so forth that limits um or stretches actually i think most times it's that educators become end up becoming overstretched because 
and that kind of like puts pressure on them and they're unable to um, think outside the box as they ought. In this case, as experiential learning requires or just apply themselves and also just move away. Well, in some cases where we've also worked with like school owners, it's also this old case around most people that end up in education wasn't their first choice. It wasn't something that they really wanted to do. And so, it, like I said at the beginning, to be an educator, you really need to be passionate about it. There are rough days. You know, I always play the video of um, Peter, Rita Pearson that says every child deserves a champion, but I don't think you can be a champion for a child if you're not keen or passionate or really into what this is like, the, the outcome, the long run. Because it's one like, you know, even in a story, it's those ones that their kids that just come and they're like, it feels like they're stretching you. And yeah. so even when you're trying to be innovative in the classroom, there's that stretch that comes from your learners. So I think those are some of the constraints. So if we can, and I think it's also really about funding because everyone wants to be able to earn an income that can take care of their families. So not to blame anyone, which is why maybe the ones that are passionate or that, that are really like, know how to teach don't end up in the teaching space sometimes on the continent maybe it's really around funding because um even though educators are the one raising the high-end professions they unfortunately earned one of the lowest salaries because they used to say that their reward is in heaven but i'm like no everybody's reward should be in heaven but um anyway <laughs> So those are some of the challenges, but from a macro level, it's really about those that are also at the helm of affairs, like in the Ministry of Education, getting this mind shift that they need to change what has been, like we need to move away from neocolonialism ideas and approaches and start embracing um, experiential approaches or even new innovative practices that also allow, because for example, you know, when my nonprofit wants to go into like schools in Nigeria, it's such a hassle. Like there's lots of loopholes. Like we have one currently, we launched the leadership, entrepreneurship and technology clubs in schools for secondary school students. And it took us almost a year getting an approval for something that is meant to complement the education. So when people want to even support and complement the education system from like industry, there are so many loop um, loopholes that they need to jump over and oops, rather that they need to jump over to just get approval, like bureaucracy just really discourages people sometimes from getting involved because educators can't do it alone. We need like um, a coalition of educators, of parents, of other stakeholders in the industry because the people, the output of the education system is going into the economy. So they need to be invested one way or the other as well. Mm. So the challenges go right. Really yeah <laughs> it's really interesting hearing the challenges and looking at the macro and the micro level if we understand that it's going to take time for the macro level to change um i think technology is and, and there are advocates from outside edu education worldwide that are that are starting to make a difference with that i suppose until that change at the top happens have you i wondered if you've ever seen examples where schools have been able to make that change to more experiential learning as their natural practice with the constraints of the curriculum, as you've mentioned, and, and, and the funding, et cetera. Have you seen any examples of, of schools being able to make that transition over despite the, the conditions that they're working? Oh, yes. Um, so most of the schools that I've seen that making these adjustments at like private schools, so like where the owners are intentional to just, you know, 
we no, there was something I didn't mention earlier, even amongst the factors is also like parents in terms of how they want grades, you know, like parents are pushing for why is my child not getting whatever grade A's and B's, whatever. But schools that have like managed that I've seen. So for example, there's a school in Nigeria called the Irid Model School, and she's been very intentional. So it's a very small school because at the end of the day, this challenge around like funding or parents and finding educators that can adapt this way mounts its pressure especially when as a small business owner in this case or an educator that's starting a business but i read model or i now they also have a college called irise she's found a way to manage and say fine will be small but it's fine because the parents through word of mouth and through the long run of seeing the difference that this type of learning is taking is having the impact it's having on our learners and you know, like, of course, parents talk to each other. So it took a number of years because she started in late 2000s, like towards 2000 and um, I think 15. But now 2023, she's been able to grow into a college and they still maintain like, although for her experiential learning is really around like literacy. It's like the bedrock. So I think some of the, the examples that I'll share, like really, which comes back to that thing about like niche. So like she found like experiential learning, but using it through a niche of literacy. So she said through like mobile libraries, then from there became like a school, but then they don't just read the books, they act it out. They, they reflect on the words they're learning. They get to use those words during the day with their parents, come back and tell the story, like with children. It was just really beautiful to see what she has done going from like mobile library, taking that into a school and so on. Another example, I'd say here at our school at African Leadership Academy um, in South Africa as also is another example where there is that um, intentionality. Um, and then we do that through, we're able to divide the curriculum basically. So there's the core, the core part, which is where most of the experiential learning takes place. And then there's like the CAIs, which is like Cambridge. So, you know, with Cambridge, it's kind of limited, but teachers that teach that, um, they try their best in there to infuse as much of experiential learning as they can within the time frame they have. But with the core, which is um, entrepreneurial leadership, writing and rhetoric, um, African studies, we've been able to manage, like there's that liberality. You can get, like you have students, role play, you have students run student enterprises, simulate businesses, they simulate um, model African unions. So there's like a lot of different programs that happen in that part. But at the end of the day, it's always like a compromise. It's because in terms of like system level or systemically, we definitely need that change to happen. But as people decide, like on a smaller scale, they're doing it, they need to figure a compromise around time. There's always that challenge with like well-being of the child, of the learner, versus now all these extra things that they have to do because we can't do, we can't just focus on one and leave the other. That's where that systemic constraint comes in. But there have been successes, like, you know, after students graduate, in spite of that or despite of that, you see that they begin to appreciate that their learning was actually really grounded in them, especially the ones that they got to experience and reflect on. With a lot of reflection, they do, they write back to teachers and just thank them or just even like share what they're doing. Like you see them growing in their fields rapidly compared to like their other peers that didn't have that opportunity. Um, in public school settings, what I would say I've seen is that I've had teachers attend like, so not at a white school level, 
But in terms of like individual teachers being intentional and saying, I have a day of the week where I'm going to just tweak the lesson and turn it on its head and do something innovative with the students. Because yes, I know I have the constraints of my inspector coming in, but at the same time, I want to make sure that my students are actually gaining actual real knowledge, real life experience from this. So you'd find individuals, not necessarily the whole school. So that's, so that's, that's interesting because, um, I, I, I'm often left with the impression that uh, sort of government curriculum or go government um, schools uh, in many countries are they're so constrained that they actually don't feel at liberty to to experience. I mean, to experiment, uh, you know, mm -hmm. with different styles of teaching, whatever. Yeah. It's interesting to to hear you say that there are the odd teacher, yeah. the odd individual who is actually taking that initiative and doing something yeah. different for their students. That's fantastic. Do you think that that's I mean, how do you think this would, uh, you know, evolve? Let's say, you know, you, you're kind of your top level private schools might adopt a far more experiential learning approach to their teaching. Mm -hmm. And then from there, how does it spread? So when... where does it spread? Um, I think it's for the government schools, it's really getting into the stakeholders. We need people at the ministry level that. Mm -hmm embrace this thankfully like one of the like reference points for example in nigeria is the current commissioner of education in lagos state um she's a, a former educator herself in the private school setting where they've done some experiential work and she's like really keen on it and she's been pushing and advocating and creating um avenues like she's empowering teachers i think we need that kind of drive at all levels so not just one commissioner in one state um pushing for um, changes in how, like, you know, she's giving opportunities to the educators and assist them to improve, to upskill themselves. She's giving them incentives like laptops and things, resources that will just really get them to engage in a community or in a hub or whatever to then like practice. So we need more for you to scale and move fast because they are kind of part of a system because they're very restricted in what they can do. And um, we need more people at the top that can make the decisions, embrace, and also have the willpower or the, like, they, do, they shouldn't just embrace it, they should invest in it. I think that's what's important mm -hmm. because, of course, it requires investment. So you can't just say we want to change the way we teach without giving the educators how the, the training, the resources, and the opportunities, like not being so restrictive in what you're assessing them on, for example. So yeah, that's what I would say. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think what's touched on me with the last couple of answers is, um, is, is the need to obviously spread experiential learning to a wider audience. And we've spoken in the past already about how how there is a lack of examples of experiential learning for other educators to draw on. That's based in a in a similar context. And your your previous your previous previous answer also made me see the need I think for not just that in terms of what teachers can see in terms of an alternative practice, but also for what parents need to see, what students themselves need to see, and perhaps what the what the what the higher levels of uh, of government need to see in terms of the impact of experiential learning on the outcomes of the students that go through that. Um, do you agree? And do, and and how do you how do you feel? we could move forward with 
with making that happen so that we share the stories of the students and, and what they're doing now because of their experiential learning alongside the you know the capturing of the actual practice yeah i think you've said it we share the story <laughs> but before we can share we need to capture it so i think it's um a lot of capturing needs to be done the little that's being done we need to document them and also um i think the reason why most people might not adopt it is like compared to like if I bring an experiential approach into to a school owner or to an administrator, and I cannot show or prove that in the if I start early, like maybe I start by grade five or six, by the time they're in grade twelve, there is an opportunity for them to do exponentially well in their academics compared to the person that brings like the root approach and says they get A's regardless of if they're actually learning anything because people are just reading to understand. I think there's also, we need to document, but we need to also start tracking performance through this approach to see that what is actually happening because that's what sells at the end of the day. People want to see that this works. And the only way we can show that it works because most times it's really residual. Is it residual knowledge? Like it's innate knowledge. I know it. I can do it at the whim. Like if you call me to do something, that's what experiential learning helps you be. It helps you build your muscle of action in skills and the knowledge that you claim to have. It's not just longer knowledge. You can actually practice it. You can um, demonstrate it. But we need to document students demonstrating. So, for example, a student that is in a chemistry class that understands like chemistry concepts, but has also experienced it with the everyday. You know, I had a student that actually, you know, it's like a one mini testimony. I wasn't really, not my direct student, but he had come to our camps. And his sister had brought him to the camps when he was like 14, I think. So he came twice. But he was really passionate about football and baking. But he was in a science-based government school in Lagos. And then she called me one day and said, oh, I need to, she needs me to speak to him because he wants to drop out of school and focus on soccer. And I was like, okay, give me the phone. So we had this long chat and it was like, oh, school is boring. You know, we just keep reading all these concepts. No, even the experiments are fun in between. It's boring. So I said, hold on. Soccer is great. You can, you will play soccer. You can play soccer alongside. But why do you think school is boring? You like baking, don't you? He's like, oh, yeah, that's the But You can't bake in school. But when he's home, he gets to bake. And so he likes it. I said, so why don't you see this as an opportunity? When you're in your chemistry class, for example, since that's one subject you're struggling with, and think about your baking, like, if you really think about what is happening in chemistry and think about when you are in the kitchen and you're baking and you can draw similarities and start thinking about what are the concepts I'm learning in class that I'm actually applying unconsciously here or that maybe I'm not applying, but I'm seeing the impact. So like, can I dissect this baking of like baking soda, flour, whatever, the chemical reaction that has happened and use that to tell a story? I think, you know, now the the good news is that he, he went but he decided to stay in school after that conversation and did well at the end of the day. But I think just being able to help young people connect those dots is the thing that really makes me keen about us spreading this gospel of experiential learning because it has a potential to really demonstrate that outcomes in the long run is more beneficial than them just getting grades and not even knowing what they've learned or what they are learning or why they are learning it. And at the end of the day, the grades are a byproduct anyway. And I think yes. that's how we need to view it. Yes. The real learning, as you say, is there's joining the dots and getting the really engaged with their learning Absolutely. because that's where the real learning happens. I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Andy, I think you were, I, I cut you off there. You were about to say something, I think. 
I suppose just a really quick question, and you don't have to go into detail on this, but you've mentioned your camps a few times. And if I'm looking at it from the UK perspective, that sounds like it's a huge project to put together. Um, but I wonder whether or not it's probably simpler than what I imagined. If you, with the camps that you put together, was it a simple setup? And is it something that could be easily replicated for anybody who's watching this? Oh, yes, they can be easy. Like, no, prior to this, when I was researching, camps were very, like, detailed. Like you said, there's, like, a lot of things to be done. But in the times we've run it, and we've run it seven times um, so far, it's actually, like, it goes back to what I was saying about leveraging the community. That's what we've always done, and that has really helped us. So, like, in terms of venue, we're asking, like, we bring the value proposition to the venue and try to get them to give us for free or for discounts, and that really takes off a huge headache and then even in how we structure it because we're really about experiential learning we're not trying to overserve the students or the participants so we include them we co-create the process with them together and it increases their sense of responsibility and reduces the amount of like burden that we have to carry for example in terms of like engaging them in the design of like the programs the cleaning the like they rotate it in teams so they're in teams and then this team does like lunch they're serving each other basically and then in the process they're learning like core values that will really serve them in the long run but then it reduces the amount of things like we have more we just have like volunteers that help manage the teams and they then they also get to reflect so they don't they're not just working and doing child labor in this sense because now they're doing work for each other but then they pause to reflect about like oh i don't do this at home why don't they actually do this at home it could make me do i can actually go back and assist my parents in doing this because now i've acquired this skill or just even people that and then we also infuse fun into it so it's not so they come up with like cool names there was a, a year that we had like superhero themes so each of the teams were superheroes and they had to choose their own superhero theme so it's just really about being it's easily replicable. It's something that we tried. We actually replicated it in Kenya last year. We just, we weren't there actually. We just said, this is the model. We'll join you virtually for sessions in terms of like the things that have been taught. But in, in the in the running, this is the model and they did it and ran it successfully. So it's replicable. It doesn't, it doesn't have to break the bank. We also do an hybrid model where we bring kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. They come for free scholarships, but then we encourage the parents that can afford to pay whatever they can afford to pay like we have a range of fees to do pay to kind of subsidize for everyone as well but then it's the reason why we insist on that hybrid approach is that it ensures that there's a sharing so like everyone leaves the the child from the disadvantaged background leaves with their self-esteem boosted because now they've made a friend from across the street they would never have met or across town they would never have met even for the camp. And then this child from that side of camp is also humbled and seeing that they are privileged and also like what they still have value and they have value to give and receive from others. It's always just beautiful to watch them forge those friendships as well. It's honestly music to my ears just hearing you just give this story. Sorry, David. Um, because it, it just gives you a lot of um, hope and, and faith and belief in the idea that the that not it being a blank sheet of paper in terms of the planning, but it being loosely planned so that you can respond to the students that come to the to the kids that come, and you can shape the experience around them. And it sounds to me like so much more growth happens naturally when you've got the space to do that rather than things. Absolutely, it's over. Um, that's over that's over prescribed so you know, thank you so much for that it's fantastic yeah um 
Basano, what, you, what you've, uh, I mean, obviously, honestly, the work that you're doing, I love it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It's been fantastic talking to you over the last 45 minutes. I'm conscious we have been talking for that long. Yeah, and I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure our conversation could continue for a lot longer. But I think, um, I think we've given people a lot to go away and think about. I did want to end off with one, one final question uh, to you, and that is um, kind of a personal question in a way. So nobody, nobody embarks on a journey like you have done and doesn't learn something about themselves. What, what one thing would you say you've learned about yourself in this incredible journey that you've taken? Oh, that's a good question. A lot, but one thing I would say is it's kind of this journey has demolished this view that I had as a child that I was not creative. It's something, and it's something I tell my participants and students because in the traditional school that I'd gone to, like creativity was defined by fine arts. And unfortunately, I'm not the best person to draw. <laughs> I can't draw to save my life. But by embarking on experiential learning, discovery, helping other people discover it, I found that creativity is actually just being ingenious about how you solve problems. It's not only expressed in how you design things. And even we design in this work as well. It's just not maybe artistic in that approach or like whatever measures. And I think it has just, just pulling down that paradigm and shifting that I have a lot to offer and a lot to grow. It has really shifted the rooms that I can enter in, even though yes, in the past, I'll be out shy away from calling myself a creative and things like that. But now, just going on this journey has really affirmed, and it helps me affirm when I when I come across students or young people that think because they've been told you're not good at math or whatever, that they're different learning styles and abilities and gifts, and you need to own yours and not let one define you. And there's a creative in all of us, uh, you know. I reckon. Um, those been an very powerful uh, a chat today. Thank you so much, Busada, for, for for joining us Thank on the Turning you. Point. Um, I'm sure we'll have opportunity to to have another podcast about another topic in education at some point in the future. I'd love it if you could come back on. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank Any you. Thank you, David and Andy. It's been lovely chatting. It went by so fast. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. Pleasure, Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.